Well, hello, and welcome back to the Startup Survival Podcast with me, your host, Peter Harrington. In this episode, episode 11, I'll be talking with Martin Hutchins, an entrepreneur who knows the struggles of startup and, more importantly for you, over the years has worked tirelessly with thousands of people to develop their sales skills. If you tuned in to the top tips and advice provided by marketing specialist Victoria Bradley in the previous episode, I'm sure you're going to benefit from and enjoy listening to Martin. Even if you develop a great product in line with Diana Kander's research principles and then apply the tactics and strategies discussed with Victoria, startup success is not guaranteed. All startups must do their research and market their products and services, yet neither of these disciplines bring in the money. Entrepreneurs seeking to get better and go further need to know how to become effective salespeople. In a couple of minutes, I'll be joined by our guest, Martin Hutchins. Rest assured, to help you sell more effectively and build your sales confidence and your business, I'll be digging for those all-important answers. But before we go there, you'll know from episode two that once upon a business life, I self-published a book called The Caravan Planner. Knowing little about publishing or mobile boxes on wheels, I kidded myself the product was half-decent and took on the sales challenge. One wet October Monday, I launched my new telesales department, me, and started phoning caravan manufacturers. Rejection followed rejection. But then, on a Tuesday afternoon, I struck gold. A Bristol-based company took interest. Excited by the response from the other end of the line, I immediately suggested a meeting. My Bristol prospect was catapulted to the top of my empty second-hand sales wall chart. Dear listener, please note, back then I was paying myself a pittance and didn't own a car, yet the opportunity to hire one, buy a tank of fuel, drive the 500-plus mile return journey and have a meeting felt like true entrepreneurial progress. Five hours on the road earned me 27 minutes with chain-smoking Dave. Dave said little and his expression hardly altered as he flicked through my 32-page masterpiece. For me, the awkward silence was made worse by the fact my fingers were melting into the flimsiest of plastic cups containing boiling hot, tasteless and tiered liquid the office machine had dared to label as coffee. Uncertain how best to progress the meeting but keen to survive, I ditched the coffee and went into presentation mode. I forget how many different and random ideas I suggested for working together. As I spoke, Dave stubbed out a fag and then immediately lit another. I didn't ask a single question. I don't think I even established why Dave had been interested in my book when we spoke on the phone. Being so green in 1990, I took the phrase, I'll get back to you, as a positive sign. There was to be no fairy tale ending. After several days enduring the sound of silence, I got on the phone. Dave was busy and his PA passed on the inevitable news. 
Over the last 30 years, I like to think I've become a better salesperson, but one thing I have definitely learned is that it is very easy to get sales wrong. To help demonstrate this point, this episode is deliberately entitled Why What You Sell Is Not What People Buy. With the help of Martin, my special guest, I want to share the subtle complexities of what's really happening during a sale and how effective salespeople develop the skills to understand both their own and their customers' behaviour. So, without further ado, let's get Martin onto the show. Martin Hutchins has spent over two decades in sales training, and he is the Managing Director of Cambridge Professional Academy. As well as being an experienced salesperson, he is also a multi-talented entrepreneur who knows all about starting and growing businesses. Martin, welcome to the Startup Survival Podcast. Thank you very much, Peter. I'm really, really pleased to be here, actually. Thanks, Martin. To kick us off, can you share a bit more about your work and your experience in sales? Of course, that'd be a pleasure. Um, But before I start, I think it's worth mentioning that I actually commenced my career as an apprentice welder. Um, So working in in manufacturing was one of the things that sort of motivated me, if you like, to to make the leap from being in an organisation where you're doing something for somebody else to actually being responsible for my own destiny as an entrepreneur. So, um, yeah, 25 years ago, I um, set up or started delivering training and I am the founder and MD of Cambridge Professional Academy. So, yeah, we, you know, we, we, we are a training company. I talk probably to entrepreneurs and people that are looking to sell or market their services on a daily basis. And I have done for, you know, for, for 25 years. So with the experience you now have, would you describe yourself as an expert in sales? I, well, I mean, at, at my core, I'm a salesperson. I mean, I, I started out in sales. I always wanted to be in sales from the age of uh, about 18. I wanted to be a salesperson. And indeed, I left the company that employed me as an apprentice to become a salesperson. So, yeah, sales moved into marketing and then moved into management and actually latterly an accountant as well as a, a software programmer as well. But, but, but sales and the challenges of sales are there. I think yeah, entrepreneurship, you need to be able to, to do most disciplines, really. OK. And in, in your time as a trainer, how many people do you estimate you have trained to become better salespeople? That is such a such a hard question. I had I come into contact with well over a thousand people a year. Me and my team, well over a thousand people a year. So we are talking hundreds, and, and and these could be from big companies. You know, we've worked with the likes of Vodafone, with BT, um, you know, all the great and the good B, uh, blue tube companies, right down to to one man bands that that you will have you know never have heard of, but still have the same challenges. As far as I'm concerned, if you're in selling or marketing you have exactly the same problems, exactly the same hurdles to overcome, whether you're a big company or a small company. Martin, as I mentioned just before you joined me, this episode seeks to examine the fact that what people buy is not what people sell. So let's get straight to that point. What are people buying when they buy anything? In answering the question about what are people buying, um, I think I'd like, if it's okay with you, Peter, to just take a step back and understand what it is that actually people think they're selling and why they're actually not selling what they think they're selling. So if we take a a typical entrepreneur, um, they've gone through this sort of emotional journey. They've got the passion, they've 
put in quite often their life savings, they've put in their time, they've put in their effort, and they have created this idea, this innovation, this, this thing that's going to change the world. And they've overcome all of the barriers and all of the challenges and all of the, what you might want to call the objections to that product in their mind over a series of, of months or if often years. So the journey that they've gone on in terms of creating that product that they believe they're selling has taken such a long time that they've forgotten in a way what it was they were trying to solve as a problem or as a need. Whereas when you're a buyer buying a product, quite often you, you're going through this, well, what's my problem? What's my issue? What's my challenge? Why am I trying to make myself better? Or why am I trying to make something else better? That journey, the entrepreneur's already gone on but this, the buyer has not gone on that same journey. So really when we're buying something, we're actually trying to fix something. But not only are we trying to fix something that may be an issue that we're facing, we're also trying to do it with the best value that we can find. So we might be faced with completely different options to solve that problem, completely different options. And we subconsciously evaluate the pros and cons, the rational and emotional factors to solve that problem. So are you saying that the state of mind of the buyer can be completely at odds with the state of mind of the startup or seller? The, the state of mind is different, but also the, the time it's taken to that state of mind. They Eventually, if you, if you said to a buyer, okay, you go through the same journey, the, the same thought processes that an entrepreneur has, they will eventually come to the same solution. Let me give you a really good example. We're not selling anything. We are, as a salesperson, we are not selling anything. What we're doing is making it easy for somebody to buy what they want to buy. We're facilitating an ease of, of purchase. If we're having to sell something, there is an implication there that we are persuading somebody against their odds to buy something. That's not that's not what we're doing. The best people that buy from us are those that are queuing up saying, I want your product. I need your product. I need your solution. I need your service. And that's because they have sold it to themselves. So as a salesperson, we just want to make people aware of what's available and why we're the best. So why is it that so many startups don't like selling or they find selling a real challenge? Because they feel they have to change somebody's mind. They feel they're in a, in a battle. They feel they're in conflict with the, with the purchaser. But actually, they're on the same side. It, it, they're just making this person aware of something because of the knowledge that the, the seller has already got, but the purchaser doesn't necessarily have at the moment. I'm fascinated that Martin uses the word battle. In all my experience, entrepreneurs often think they are in a battle to persuade people to purchase. Unfortunately, too many startups go about their work in the same kind of way I try to sell my caravan planner. Resistance results when a product or service is created and developed without the aid of robust and meaningful customer research. The valuable metaphor I shared in the previous episode is relevant again. Struggling businesses struggle because the amount of buyer resistance they face feels like pushing a rock uphill, whilst successful businesses guide rocks downhill because what they offer is what their research has shown customers want. Now, 
I'll be asking Martin to talk about how a seller should sell later. But staying with the theme of buyers for a moment, Martin, you mentioned that buyers seek solutions. Can you say a bit more about what drives people to purchase? So first of all, we, you often hear the term features and benefits. So people hear about this thing, sell benefits, not features. Many, many entrepreneurs have created or in, invented something which has got wonderful features. It's bigger, it's faster, it's, it's a nicer smell, whatever it is, it's a better product. That's the feature. Um, and the more enlightened people will therefore talk about the benefits of that product compared to you know the the other products that are available to solve that problem. What people often miss, in my experience, is the advantage. So I call it the FAB factor, F-A-B. We talk about features and benefits, F and B. The A in the middle is the advantage. So when we look at, and I mentioned this earlier, when we look at a product to solve a problem, we are going to compare it consciously or subconsciously against alternative solutions. What a good salesperson does is not only understand the benefits of their products, but also the advantages over the other options. So let me give you an, an, an example. You've got some money, you've inherited some money. You go to a bank, you, you say to the bank, I wanna put my money in the bank, and they say to you, well, yeah, fair enough, then we're gonna give you so-and-so interest. Or you go to a pensions advisor and they say, well, put it into the pension, we're gonna give you a more secure income, blah, blah, blah. However, what you're also doing is looking at, maybe putting it under the bed, because the advantage of having it under the bed is that you can pull it out and use it whenever you want. So there's completely different solutions to the same problem. And your job as a salesperson is not only to say the benefit of my solution is X, the advantage of my solution over the other options are ABC. OK, so a good salesperson knows what the competition is doing. Direct and indirect competition. Direct competition would be somebody else that's offering a similar service to you. Indirect would be something completely different as a solution, but nevertheless solves the same problem. Under the bed and in the bank are both alternative solutions to storing your money. <laughs> right, Martin, this good practice sounds great and makes real sense. But to go back to basics for a moment, when I go out to the shops, I invariably meet sellers who don't know anything about me and my needs because they either take no interest in me or simply ask a couple of basic courtesy questions before launching into their product wonder spiel. Why do they do this? Interesting question that you pose here about the, the process actually of the sales cycle one of the fundamental mistakes that everybody makes, certainly rookies, and actual fact, I've met many salespeople who are very, very experienced, been around in the industry for years and years. The fundamental mistake they make is they don't ask good questions. They don't ask good questions. If you don't ask a buyer or a potential customer, what is it they're looking for? Why are they looking for this? What's their issue? What's their problem? Why are they, they trying to solve this particular need? You've got no way of matching your proposition with their requirements. And actually, in fact, there's, a, there's an extra step there as well. There's not only the issue of asking the question, there's also the issue of going back to the person and saying, so what I understand you're, you're, you're asking me for is X. So many times people misunderstand, misinterpret, or make assumptions or stereotype, and they don't really get to the true answer. <laughs> Fascinating, Martin. So, so let me clarify what you are saying there. To start, what is it that stops sellers from asking questions? Arrogance. Really? Salespeople have been trained on the technicalities of their product, 
entrepreneurs have lived and breathed their new product as they as they've developed it and they become arrogant that it is the best thing and therefore they assume that everybody else will will have the same you know belief if you like of of how good it is and it, in my opinion it's an arrogant perspective okay arrogance well arrogance can't be a good strategy because for one it prevents us finding out what customers want and secondly in my experience at least arrogant people are often not that likable who buys from people they don't like sorry martin back to you my other point of clarification is why do people only ask a couple of questions and then leap into their product presentation because they've been on a course and the course says the sales cycle is you build rapport, you open the discussion, you ask questions, you met, and then you then you make your proposition. And therefore, stage three of that sales process is ask questions. So therefore, they ask some questions, but actually, they're not interested in the answers. So and they're just I- going through the process of I think I need I, I need to know how many you're going to buy because I want to know how big my commission is going to be. Okay, so do people only ask a couple of questions because they are lazy or or getting overexcited by the prospect of the sale or or even both? Okay, so they ask questions primarily for their own benefit, i.e. what am I going to get out of this? Not to understand, seek to understand what is it the customer wants to buy. That's the first mistake that they make. The second mistake that they make when they ask questions is they ask questions in order to then position their features as opposed to their benefits. So they'll say, right, how how big a unit do you want to fit in your space? And therefore, we oh, we've got we've got small units. We we you know we we sell units which would fit in the space that you've got available. As opposed to, well, actually, size might be an issue, but what you're really looking for is something that's a little bit more uh, efficient, or there's another benefit that you might get. So, in my experience, the majority of poor questioning is because people are looking to drive the questions around their features rather than understand the buyer. If I'm honest with you, Peter, the best questions are questions about the emotions. How do you feel about something? What, well, what's the issue that you're facing and why is it causing you a problem? What can I do to help you? They're much, much better questions than what are you looking for? You can send that through on an email as far as I'm concerned. Martin, you've mentioned the E-word, emotions. Just through doing the research for this podcast series and listening to Andy Penaluna in episode one, I've become increasingly aware that even though we can't see or touch them, emotions play a significant role in the decisions human beings make. Can you share any thoughts about why it is important for entrepreneurs to foster emotional or deeper relationships when seeking to become better salespeople? Let's look at the the two types of sales process that go on. The first type of sales process that go on, what you might want to call a transactional sales process. A transactional sale is you go into a shop, you need to buy something or, or somebody comes to you to sell you something and the organization that's selling it are only thinking about that single purchase, that single sale, that single event um, and making a profit on that event. That type of organization gets a bad reputation and gives a bad reputation to sales. But you know, we're talking about the double glazing salespeople. We're talking about the insurance salespeople. We're talking about estate agents. And you know, some of these people that really never, ever think about sale number two. 
that should never, ever be your organization's philosophy. Even if you don't think you can sell to that person another t- on another occasion, they will recommend you, they will refer you, and they will build the reputation of your brand. So you should always be thinking about the sale as something that's going to lead on to another, the lifetime value of that customer or the lifetime value of that customer's network or that customer's reputation. As soon as you you understand that people will say good things about you, your whole process of selling becomes different. It becomes an empathetic relationship, partnership-oriented event rather than that one sale. You're not trying to maximize your profit in that one order. And quite often, I have sold things myself where I know that I'm going to make a loss. And I know I will never, ever make my actual fact quite often I give things away to people for free on the basis that I'm building a good relationship with somebody that's going to then, you know, grow my business as a whole. Okay, so should entrepreneurs seeking success be driven by the goal of creating high quality long term relationships? 100%. I mean, I I cannot say anything other than yes. You've got to think about the long-term relationship there. (laughs) Great stuff, Martin. And and coming back to the theme of this episode, buyers are becoming more savvy. In your experience, what happens when buyers detect the fact the seller is more interested in the sale as opposed to the the long-term relationship? So interestingly, when you see, you know, if I were to... um, if I were to watch a salesperson or a buyer, and I do quite often do a lot of role play assessments with people and, and work out, you know, what's going on there, you can usually see the conflict in the body language more than in the words. So actually, you know, I'm not sure whether your you know your listeners are going to be people that are going to be selling face to face or whether they're going to be selling remotely. The conflict tends to be much more apparent when you visualize or you, you, you look at the body language of people. It, and we're talking about micro movements here. We're talking about, you know, small sort of uh, winces in the face or movements of the arms or, or sitting back in, in their seat. Um, the words tend to reinforce the body language rather than the body language reinforcing the words. So, yes, I think if a, if a salesperson is going to be is too aggressive or too features focused then they the body language of the buyer would would give their their feelings away very very quickly very very quickly and if and if i'm a you know if if i'm helping people to sell more effectively i would actually get them to work on their body language and their tone of voice and their um, empathetic manner before I then say, right, now let's go through the sales process. Let's make sure you build rapport. Let's make sure you answer questions well. By the way, you know, we, we, you talked about uh, people feeling um, sold to. It's an, that is what you would call an objection. The best questioning that one can do is take all the objections off the table at the beginning. In other words, prepare the, 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 the buyer such that when, they, when you get to what you might want to call the close or the agreement stage, there are no objections because you've dealt with them all in the questioning phase and your matching of your proposition. Uh-huh. So in other words, Martin, the seller has asked plenty of good, relevant questions to find out exactly what the problem is. So when offering the solution, there is a clear match that appeals to the buyer. That's right. That's correct. Just coming back to this point about body language, what postures or gestures potentially make buyers feel uneasy? Leaning forward and and taking a more aggressive stance on the part of the the seller is is obviously one form of body language. And I think too much eye contact as well. Uh, There are some um, what you might want to call shy buyers 
they don't like 100% eye contact. They, they prefer to have a little bit of a relax and so you look away. So I think too much of a false follow-up, right? But you've, you've really got to read your customer, if I'm honest, though. Now, if your customer is an assertive person, you do need to match and mirror that. One of the terms that we often use in body language is mirroring uh, the other person. And you can use, if you're quite clever at it, you can use a mirroring concept to copy the buyer and then change their mood subtly by the use of your own body language as well. Okay, and do you have any tips and advice for listeners that will help them better read buyer behaviour, Martin? What I think that you should do is is use the um, the both the sort of the, the the body language, but also the verbal cues. They're called non-verbal and verbal cues. Look at the the non-verbal cues as in the body language. And my little tip there, by the way, is work from the feet up. If you're going to try and read another person's body language, look at their feet first. Their feet tend to subconsciously point at something or point away from something they're not interested in or point towards something they're interested in. So work from the feet up when you're trying to read somebody's body language. Then look at their stance, their angle, their neck, their shoulders, their head position, their eyes, their mouth, and you're looking for liquid. So to start at the bottom up and understand something, and then try to match that with the words and the tone that they're using as well. You should never look at one sign in, in isolation. Often people talk about, you know, if, if a person's got their arms folded, that means they're negative. It doesn't. It, it could well mean that they're relaxed. So you've got to look at all the other things in combination to understand the buyer behavior. Reading by behaviour clearly has its complexities. You mentioned working from the feet up. Are there any other pointers people should specifically look for? The one tip that I would suggest that people look for is what you would call leakage. So if any of, you, if any of your listeners are poker players, they'll be well-versed in the concept of micro signs. You know, people wear sunglasses to hide their, their pupils opening. They try to keep stony face. You're looking for leakage. So as a, as a seller you'll say something and you've got to 100% tune in on exactly what the expression on the other person's face is, is making, even to the point whether they're taking a, a, an extra intake of breath, because when we get excited, our heart beats faster and we breathe heavier. So you're looking for an extra intake of breath because you've said something good, or you're looking for that very, very minor sit back in your seat because you've said something that's upset somebody or, or that's not what they want to hear. And if you're, again, if you're a salesperson looking to uncover objections, you'll make a statement, you'll see a very, very subtle sit back in the seat or change of head position. And if I'm honest with you, you need to be brave and say, have I just said something that, that you weren't, you was not expecting to hear? Have I just disappointed you? You've got to uncover that objection immediately. Don't try and brush it under the table. I love the detail, Martin. Thank you. I'm sure people new to sales may be feeling slightly overwhelmed by the prospect of meeting people for the first time, making a good impression, making a sale, and also picking up on micro behaviours throughout. To succeed takes quite a bit of practice, experience, and learning through mistakes. Is that fair? Okay, so there's two tips that I can give to your listeners in terms of how to learn these skills. First of all, it would be to take somebody else with you when you can and ask that person to be an observer, just to sit and watch and listen. And then afterwards, give you some feedback on not necessarily the mistakes you made, but some of the things where you can improve on and take it as a positive that somebody's going to critique you. You cannot do this on yourself when you're in the heat of the moment during the sale. 
it, it's really you know, helpful to have somebody else watching you there. It doesn't matter whether they're senior or junior to you, just a third person. That's, that's one little tip that I would give. Um, and the other little tip that I would give is take your time. Salespeople are passionate, they're energetic, they're enthusiastic. That's why they choose that job. Entrepreneurs, the same thing. They're energetic, they're passionate, they're enthusiastic. Just take a breath, sit back, listen, let the person talk to you. Control the conversation without actually the other person believing that you're controlling it. And, and again, you can uh, evaluate your process or you can evaluate your sales skills because you've got you've given yourself more time to do so. Yeah, sound advice, Martin. Now you've highlighted some keywords like control and mirroring. Let's start with this issue of control. What kind of advice do you give to people with whom you work so they are better equipped to stay in control during a sales meeting? It's a shame this is not videoed, because this would be a really useful thing to show you visually how to do this. When you make a statement, and I always say the same thing to anybody that I'm working with in terms of how to control the conversation, is to bite your lip. You make a statement and you just bite your lip. And, you, and I physically say to people, put your lips together because you, you cannot talk when your lips are together. So make a statement, physically feel your lips go together and wait for the person to answer. And the more you practice stopping talking, the much more effective you'll be at setting. So when you say make a statement, this this could be a question. Whatever it is you're going to say, make a statement, ask a question, say what you've got to say, and then put your lips together and wait. Salespeople call it the power of the pause. And this second issue of mirroring, let's say you are at a meeting with a cautious buyer, someone who wants to take their time. How might you mirror their behaviour, for example? Okay, so your body language should be, if you're waiting for somebody to answer, or you want to put... Um, give people the space and the time, you'll sit back. So you'll, you'll make your statement or ask your question and you'll sit back in your chair. That subconsciously says to the other person, I'm now passing the baton to you to speak and, and take over the conversation for a while. When you feel that you need to interject, you can either use your words and your, you know, your, your, your tone or you can actually lean forward. Leaning forward says, I'd like to go now, please. Martin, let's move on and let's imagine 10 entrepreneurs with all kinds of different businesses have come to one of your workshops and they all want to know about getting better and going further with their selling and sales. Let's assume they've heard everything you have shared so far. What other critical advice would you offer them? So first of all, I think that make sure that you're mindful of both the rational and emotional evaluation that a customer goes through usually we think features and benefits as we've talked about earlier features and benefits quite often are rational things is it cheaper is it faster is it reliable is it safe that is just stage one of the sales process stage two and the most important stage is the emotional feeling towards buying your product or your service how do they feel you only have to look at people that go into a clothes shop and any good salesperson in the clothes shop will say, yeah, it looks great. How do you feel in it? It's how you feel. You will only buy as a customer if you feel right about that decision. It doesn't matter if on paper it is the best thing in the world. If it doesn't feel right, you won't part with your money. Uh-huh. So to be successful with any sale, you have to be able to get to the point where the buyer 
is emotionally comfortable with the purchase. Is, is that what you're saying, Martin? You will never close a sale unless somebody, unless somebody commits to emotionally buying that purchase, your product or service. So being able to understand the buyer's deeper emotional relationship with whatever is being sold is, is very important too. However, Martin, you know, there's an issue here for me relating to the rapport word you mentioned earlier. To develop true rapport, you can't go up to a customer you've only just met and say, hi, how do you feel about buying our gizmo today? Or is that what people should do? Okay, so let me let me talk you through the very simple stages of, of selling um, and, and, and focusing on the, the importance of rapport specifically, Peter. Um, first of all, I have to say, selling is a process and not an art. I fundamentally believe that, that one can be taught to sell. It doesn't matter whether they have the gift of the gab or anything else, as long as they understand the process. Most people can sell effectively if they go through the stages that I'm now going to discuss or briefly cover with you. So the first one is the rapport. Rapport is the what I would call the foundation of a really good sales process. Rapport is finding something that you and the customer have got in common, a common interest. Uh, it could be the weather, it could be football, it could be the environment, you know, the office that you're in, something that you can just have a very relaxed conversation about. That's stage one. You must, must, must build good rapport. That should seamlessly lead into this next stage, which is, I tend to call it the agenda stage. It's where you lay out i'd like to talk about this i'd like you to tell me about your issues that you're facing which is why i'm here and by the end of the conversation and this is the brave part by the end of conversation my objective is x it could be a follow-up meeting it could be that you commit to the purchase whatever it is so you've laid out on the table straight away where you believe this agenda is going to lead to and your customer can say yes or no to that it's an objection you can handle straight away so let's lay out your agenda. Let's open. Then you start into the questioning phase and clarify your answers or your interpretation of those questions. So it's all very well, as we talked about it earlier, it's already well asking a couple of questions, but you must clarify your understanding of what's being told back to you. Then you would move on to, this is your proposition, this is your solution to their needs that they've laid you out. And possibly, any objections will come out there because you've misinterpreted what's been said. In my opinion, if there are objections, it's because you've done your job badly in questioning anyway, because you've not taken those objections off the table. Um, and then finally, you ask for the business. If that was what you set out at the beginning of the agenda, this is this is the purpose of our conversation. You know, we're gonna we're gonna try and resolve the, the sale today, or we're gonna move on. You ask for the next meeting, or you ask for the referral, or whatever it is that you're asking for. So, really simple stages. If you follow that process, and you, okay, you need to do your questioning well, and you need to have, you know be empathetic and all the other personality traits that I've mentioned. But the the process of selling is actually quite straightforward. Okay, so what you're saying is that selling involves building rapport, tuning in and developing empathy, questioning, listening and clarifying and ultimately presenting a solution that solves the buyer's problem. I imagine entrepreneurs can have the best product in the world, but if they ignore your sales process, they can really damage or at least limit their business prospects? If the, the foundation stage, the rapport building stage is not correct, 
you're going to struggle on everything else. People will not open up. They won't tell you what they want. They won't tell you when they don't like what they hear from you. They won't. You'll get the classic response, and I've heard it a hundred times. I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you is, thanks very much for your time. I'm going to see the next the next competitor as soon as you walk out the door. I'll get back to you is, is not I'll get back to you. Rapport building, good rapport stops the I'll get back to you statements. Martin, this has been so insightful, but unfortunately, I have to move on to the final couple of questions. I think we both know that no one sells every time and therefore selling can be hard because you have to deal with rejection, sometimes quite a bit of it. What advice can you share with entrepreneurs and people starting out regarding the issue of handling rejection and and being resilient? Being an entrepreneur, being a startup, even being a salesperson, if I'm honest with you, is can be a soul-destroying job. Fortunately, and I don't know what it is about the people that choose to go into the into the role of business development, they tend to have A, thick skins, and B, are able to visualize a goal much further into the future. So you might not get a sale today, you might not get a sale tomorrow, you might not get it this month, but for some reason, they can visualize the payoff being in a few months' time or a year's time. And I think that one of the, the best pieces of advice that I could give somebody is focus on that long-term goal. Focus on why you set out on this journey and what you, you know, and that payoff is, is there. Uh, you know, one of the things I have said to people in the past is even put a visualization board up on their fridge or on their wall that they look at. I remember years ago, I... Being you know, a financial person as well, I put the balance sheet of my company that I expected in five years' time. I actually built the balance sheet and pinned it to my wall, and I would look at that every day in terms of what I felt the balance sheet would look like, having had a successful sales process along the way. Uh-huh. So your advice, Martin, is to focus on the longer-term goal and not to be distracted by the inevitable rejections and knockbacks that all people in sales experience. So, yeah, first first piece of advice is definitely focus on the goal. The second piece of advice is learn from the mistake. Look at, as I said earlier, maybe take somebody with you to, to, to critique you. Look at what you may have done wrong. So I've seen things like people being too techy. You know, they go into a conversation with a the customer. They've, they, they've got this wonderfully technical product. They talk all about the technology. The customer doesn't understand the technology, and it completely turns them off because they just want the solution. So don't be too techy in your in your discussions, too eager to close. Again, if you are not comfortable in your, your sales process, you want to close the deal, but actually people need to go on the same emotional journey that you've gone on. So, so relax a little bit, but always follow up. Always, always follow up. Again, the opposite to too eager to close is too scared to follow up. And quite often people assume that they've, they've the customer's been enthusiastic. They've said the you know, wonderful things during the meeting, the deal is closed. They just need to wait for the phone call. That phone call never comes because the customer has been enthusiastic, but hasn't quite overcome all of their objections yet. So I think you know, one of the other big issues is this this you know, eagerness and, and the what's the word? The snowball, the, you know, the roller coaster ride that everybody goes on when you've got something exciting to talk about. It doesn't always transpire into hard cash. So just accept that. Okay, so you're saying entrepreneurs must develop a customer-focused mindset, go at the buyer's pace, and always take responsibility for following up. And it's 
inappropriate and too simplistic to believe that you can just be yourself when seeking to sell and build a professional relationship. Is that right, Martin? The watchword of good salespeople is empathy. Learn empathy. Empathy, empathy, empathy. Understand, listen, interpret, reflect. It is all about empathy. It's it's not about persuasiveness. Yeah, yeah. Empathy. Couldn't agree more. And on that note, I have one final question. Do you have any recommended reads about empathy or better selling that you think listeners will benefit from? It's it's about selling. My favourite book is about selling, but actually it's about running the whole business. You may well have had this mentioned to you by some of the other people that you've talked to, Peter, but the book that I seem to be recommending day in, day out is Start With Why by Simon Sinek. <laughs> Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Great call. I talked about Simon Sinek quite a bit in series one, so I'm delighted he's back with us. You never know. I might get him on the show one day. So very final question, Martin. Why do you rate Start With Why so highly? It makes you focus on the customer. It makes you focus on other people. It it teaches you to understand why do people like you? Why do your customers queue up to buy from you? Why do your staff get out in the bed in the morning and come to work for you? It's because you're proposition it's because your idea it's because your dream resonates with them and you effectively communicate that to them so as a salesperson if i truly truly believe in what i'm selling and i can communicate that effectively simon cynic would say people who could just want to buy from you anyway you haven't got to sell to them they're going to come to you in the same way that as an you know as a leader of a business your staff are going to want to sell it on your behalf because they truly buy into what you're selling as well For me, that is the book that probably has has made the biggest difference to my philosophy of selling and my philosophy of running a business. Martin, it has been a pleasure being able to chat with you on this show. So much of what you have said resonates with and takes forward issues that other guests have highlighted. Thank you for sharing your experience and insight on the Startup Survival Podcast. Peter, it's been a real pleasure to be part of the programme and I appreciate the fact that you've asked me to join him. Well, here you go. Martin covered a huge amount of ground in considerable detail and I really hope his thoughts and ideas will put the wind into your sails. To be honest, Martin's book recommendation left me a little stumped for suggestions, mainly because I can't think of a better text. Whether you seek sales or business inspiration, Simon Sinek speaks a lot of sense. So go get yourself a copy of Start With Why. Another reason I'd like you to buy this book is the fact I've discovered over the years that the very best question you can ask in any sales situation is simply why. For reference, I cover this point in more detail in episode five in series one. But for now, I'll leave it there and consider why I drove 500 plus miles in a hire car to spend 27 minutes with chain-smoking Dave back in 1990. You know I sold nothing, but fortunately I learned quickly. The lesson? Get out and sell. Whatever the result, the wisdom you acquire will prove invaluable. Hopefully this Get Better, Go Further podcast 
has allowed you to think through how you can sell better and help your business or business idea go further. But before I sail into the sunset and look ahead to the next show, let me recognise our special guest. Martin, thank you for explaining and making clear what good selling is all about. I have no doubt that many startups and budding entrepreneurs will seize on your ideas, tips and advice. And thank you to Duncan, my producer, Chris, for your research and cheers to the music sponsors, Sea Jam Moths. Finally, without the support of LJ at the London School of Economics, as well as the SimVenture team who allow me time out to do this, this podcast would not be possible. In the next episode, to be published on Thursday, the 1st of July, I'll be examining how you can take a business from local to international. With the help of my special guest, who started with less than nothing and now has a flourishing global company, I'll be sharing the secrets of how to grow and scale a new venture. Until then, your podcast feedback is not just welcomed, it's needed. Share what you really like and let me know the truth about what needs to be improved. And of course, whatever your listening channel of preference, please remember to rate, review and subscribe. Until next time, my name's Peter Harrington and this has been your Startup Survival Podcast. Go well, stay safe and thank you.